Thank you very much, Jason. For those that were here this morning, I've not graduated yet to have entry music like Daft did this morning, but maybe in a couple of sermons' time. Let me pray um, for us as we look uh, at God's Word, um, and then we will um, explore it. Heavenly Father, thank you that we have the opportunity now to look um, at your Word. Um, Thank you that your word is written, that even um, the smallest child might understand it, but even the greatest mind um, is still um, wrestling with it. Um, And ultimately, Lord, your Holy Spirit is the one that reveals uh, your word to us. We pray that the Holy Spirit would be at work tonight in our hearts, whether we are a Christian here or whether we are um, a non-Christian. We pray that you would be speaking to us through your word, through the Holy Spirit, that at the end of this uh, sermon we'd be left um, with more of a view of your glorious gospel um, and the work that you've done in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, many of you um, will have seen in the news um, that Billy Graham uh, died this year on the 21st of February. And it was really interesting actually looking at the news um, that followed after his death. Many people were reflecting on his life. And in uh, in particular, there was this um, reference to his ministry. People were speaking about the ministry that he'd had over the number of years that he had been alive. Some of you in this room may have been saved from that very ministry. I know that my parents were. And what many people were saying is he was a man of integrity. He was a man that preached the gospel. And his ministry had been highly, highly effective through God. But then we also have um, other people that we've seen. Um, If you've um, looked into um, ministers in the past, you will have seen that there are some people that actually fall away from the faith. There are people that gain fame for their ministry, um, but then for maybe a reason of sin or something else goes on, and actually they lose their integrity. Their ministry is massively, massively damaged. And it really raises the question, well, what are the marks of true ministry? And how does that actually apply to us today as well? And we're in 2 Corinthians um, in this series at the moment and tonight. And at the time that this was being written, there was this real attack against Paul's ministry. Paul is the author of this book. And many people were attacking what he had been saying. But Paul didn't actually just see this attack of his ministry as a personal attack against himself. No, he sees this attack as attack on the gospel. And that is why he is writing this letter to the Corinthians. He is not just wanting to protect his personal reputation, but actually he's wanting to protect the good news about Jesus Christ that he has been preaching to the church in Corinth. Last week, Josh was uh, here and he was preaching on how he defended his integrity, how Paul speaks about how his integrity shows that he is sent from God. And tonight he's going to move on to defend his ministry. And I have three points from the text tonight, if you're taking notes. Um, The first is that ministry is done by those who have the aroma of Christ. The second is ministry is done by those made competent by God. And the third is ministry done by those made bold in the new covenant. So first of all, ministry is done by those who have the aroma of Christ. Look down with me at verses um, 12 and 13, and you'll see that there is some context added to this passage. Paul speaks about the point in which he's at in his life at this time. But this isn't just him explaining the context. This actually, in many ways, is showing his love and his concern for the Corinthian church. 
Titus, the man that he's speaking about, would have had word on how the church was doing. In particular, how they'd responded to the letter that Paul had sent, in many ways rebuking and challenging the church. Paul was eager to receive news on how the church was doing. He was eager to hear from Titus. And as we move on to verse 14, we see that he really summarizes his ministry. Paul is a man who is led by Christ to spread the knowledge of Jesus. Now, the language that's used in these verses might seem quite strange to us. We, we read captives in Christ's triumphal procession. Well, actually, in this context that we're looking at tonight, what would have happened is many kingdoms or places would have attacked another place. They would have um, ravaged that place. And then there would be a return. Now, it would maybe be the general who had gone out to war or the king himself or the ruler at the time. And they would lead the people back and they would come back into the city. And as they came back into the city, they would come back in glory. They'd just been victorious. People would have been pleased to see them return. But what would have happened is this procession would have had captives included. Those people that they had gone and they had defeated who were now that place's own people. These people had been captured as slaves, potentially, and they were now paraded in front of everybody to show the victory that had been attained. And that is the reality of the gospel in many ways. But there is a definite difference, because we don't have a tyrant of a king who's won a war and who is bringing slaves back to be mistreated and worked to the bone. No, instead of destroying his enemies... Jesus went and gave his life in sacrifice to win a people to himself. Now, the word captive may prompt unease in us. It doesn't seem like a particularly attractive thing to be. Why would a loving God have captives, you may ask? Well, actually, the reality is, is that whether you're a Christian here or a non-Christian, every single human being is a captive to something. We will either be a captive to sin or we will be a captive to a glorious saviour. Christians are Jesus's captives. However, they're not unwillingly taken. They are not people that are taken to be God's slave, to just do his dirty work. No, these are people that are made as captives, but they are actually treated as adopted sons and daughters. If you're a Christian here, you are a captive, but God has treated you like an adopted son or daughter. That is an amazing, amazing truth. And the Corinthians had particularly questioned Paul on why he could be so bold. So he'd particularly rebuked them in his message. And there was a real question of, well, how comes Paul can actually do this? What, what validity does he have? And the temptation of the day, particularly for this church, was to uh, listen to the super apostles. Now, the super apostles of the day were those people who seemed really attractive at the time. They were those people who came with an attractive message, who were saying to the Corinthians that actually their words were to be listened to, and that actually Paul, who wasn't that impressive, shouldn't be listened to. But this description of Christians as captives in Christ's triumphal procession is just Paul's way of reminding us of a theme that we will see throughout the whole of 2 Corinthians. Throughout the whole of 2 Corinthians, as different people come up to preach, we will see God's power made perfect in weakness. The ministry that Paul has been sent to deliver is the good news of Christ's triumph. But that is a triumph that comes through death. 
You look at the life of Jesus. He himself came, not in an impressive way, but he came and he humbled himself. And as we move on, we see Paul makes uh, this claim. He makes this claim in verse 15. For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. Paul is claiming that God himself is pleased with Paul's ministry. Well, why is that? It's because his ministry is the aroma of Jesus. Now, smell can split us. Um, It can create many different responses. Um, This illustration, um, I won't lie, is nicked um, from Daph, so thank you very much for that. Um, But Daph really helpfully said, imagine going to a barbecue and uh, the person that's uh, taking the barbecue takes out this juicy, succulent steak. Now, this steak is one of those expensive ones, not one of the cheap ones that you get in Lidl. This steak has been one that has been marinated in red wine for 12 hours, and it's taken and it's put on the barbecue. Not for very long, to make sure that it's still rare, still a little bit of the blood is in the steak. There would be two responses, I'd imagine, from that happening. There would be a response of people maybe salivating at that steak, thinking about how it's going to taste, looking forward to eating it. However, if you're a vegetarian, you probably will react in a different way. It isn't necessarily going to prompt you to feel hungry. It might actually make you feel quite nauseous. It might actually make you feel quite angry. Same smell, but two different responses. And God has sent Paul to spread the fragrance of the gospel. That's how the gospel is described by Paul. And he is pleased with his ministry because it is so clear that Jesus is a part of Paul's ministry, the main part of his ministry. Just like a smell clings to a person, you can't get close to Paul and not realize that his ministry is centered on Jesus. Now, if you do a word search of the word um, aroma, um, it will come up many, many times, particularly in the Old Testament. It's a repeated theme. And particularly in the books of Leviticus and Numbers, we see it used for when a sacrifice is made to God. And we read particularly that actually when a sacrifice is made correctly, it is aroma that is pleasing to God. And it's not just like our human understanding of a smell, but actually it's a picture of God's response. Just like a smell can either bring delight or repulsion, as we saw, so God responds to the sacrifices that his people are making to him. And the aroma of the Lord Jesus will split humanity. To those who are going to put their trust in Christ, his death is the smell of victory. His death is a smell of life. It's a smell of salvation. But to those who are not trusting in Jesus, that smell is a smell that is an offence to them. Why is it an offence? Well, that smell is a smell that declares that to the non-Christian, they are a captive to sin. They deserve punishment for rejecting Jesus. And if we're honest, the word captive makes us feel negative. But if you're told you're a captive to sin, and actually you have rejected Jesus and you deserve punishment, that isn't an attractive thing to the non-Christian. And that is a message that actually comes with a massive responsibility. Look down with me on verse 16. Paul says, and who is equal to the task? Now, at the time of this letter being written, there were many people that I spoke about earlier called super apostles. They were claiming to have authority, but the aroma of their message was not the message of Christ. It instead was them trying to make a personal profit. 
And just like the Corinthians were warned, we also should be measuring uh, those who teach God's word. Are they preaching sincerely from the gospel, or are they looking to gain profit? When there are those who are profiting materially from the gospel, it should be a warning to us. Private jets, uh, mansions, and extraordinarily expensive cars are not the mark of a captive. Now, those who give their lives to ministry should be taken care of. I'm not attacking the fact that Daph has just had a loft conversion. Don't have, you don't have to worry about that. But actually, we should be looking. And if we see that people are having extravagance when they are preaching God's word and are looking to profit from that, that should be a warning to us. The aroma of everything they do, although they are not perfect, should be the aroma of Christ. And actually, this is a direct application As we go through these three points, I'm going to apply each of them at the end. And this actually applies directly to us. And my point of application here is examine whether you are spreading the aroma of Christ. Now, Paul had a unique role as an apostle. Um, He had a unique role to spread the gospel. But as Christians here tonight, we are also given the responsibility of going to spread the gospel. And I think this firstly means uh, two things. Firstly, we shouldn't be surprised if non-Christians are offended by our message. If you are speaking about the gospel, it shouldn't come as a shock to you that that will actually be a repulsive thing to some non-Christians. Because in essence, what we're saying is we're calling them sinners. We are saying, actually, that there is something that is fundamentally wrong with the way that they're living their lives. And for many people, they won't like that. So first of all, that shouldn't be a surprise to us. But also, secondly, it should give us a challenge. Do our lives smell of the fragrance of Christ? Do your work colleagues, your friends and your family, do they know that you're a Christian? If they don't know that you're a Christian, then I would give a very, very strong challenge to you about whether you are living as a captive led by Christ. But if the answer is yes, well, then the second question that we would be challenged by is how clearly can people see that Jesus is an aroma in your life? Can they see that Jesus is the most important person in your life? The challenge for us day to day as Christians should be not that we are uh, chameleons, but instead that we are captives. We don't just want to blend into society, but we should be people who are very obviously different and very obviously loving Christ. I was particularly struck thinking about this, about a work colleague who is uh, just about to move to Dublin for a new job. And as I realised that he was leaving, it made me question, actually, what perception does he have of me? Not of what perception he has of me as a person. I'm sure he thinks I'm really, really funny and, and interesting. No. I was thinking about, actually, what is the perception of how he thinks I live my life? Am I somebody who he thinks, oh, he just gets on with um, the world? He, he says that he's a Christian, but he just kind of looks the same as everybody else. Or did I live a life and have I lived a life which he would say Christ is very, very clearly the center point of his life? That is something that I need to measure up to. That is something that we all need to measure up to. So we've seen um, that first point. The second point that we're going to come to is ministry is done by those made competent by God. So the first point is ministry is done by those who have the aroma of Christ. The second point is ministry is done by those made competent by God. We find this in chapter 3 verses 1 to 6. 
Now, one of the attacks that was given um, against Paul is that he didn't come with a letter of recommendation. Now, the reason that this attack came is because actually there were super apostles at the time. And these super apostles had these really seemingly impressive resumes. And that meant that Paul seemed very inferior to them. And it led the Corinthians particularly to question where Paul's authority came from. Imagine if we went through uh, an interview process um, for a role here at the church, and we had two applicants. The first one, um, he turned up in a rusting car, uh, leaking oil, uh, making a horrible, horrible sound. He seems really unimpressive uh, by the way that he walks in, almost quite shy. Um, And he actually seems almost quite timid. And we get to the point of asking him for his references, and he says, oh, actually, I don't have any references to give. Candidate number two then walks into the King Centre, and he's just stepped out of his new Range Rover Sport. He's wearing the classic Christian combo, the classic middle-class Christian combo of having beige chinos and blue, uh, a blue shirt. And it's perfectly ironed. His references are all very extensive. I've noticed that Daft's wearing that. I didn't realise that before I said <laughs> <laughs> Yes, checked. Um, But his references are really impressive. They speak about um, how culturally relevant he is, how um, easy he is to listen to, how actually successful he's been with his take on what it means to be a Christian in the world today. Well, which would we gravitate to? Which would we want to come and work in our church? Who would we want to be stood up at the front of church preaching the gospel every week? Well, the temptation is to go with the person that seems impressive. The Corinthians had looked at Paul, this man who didn't seem impressive, who seemed timid, and they'd questioned him. They'd questioned why he didn't have letters of recommendation like all these other super apostles. And Paul's response comes here, that the evidence of his ministry is seen in the Corinthians themselves. Look in the mirror, he says. Look at the person next to you. Look at your brothers and sisters. That is my reference letter. That is the proof that I am competent, and that is the proof that I have ministered the gospel. He presents no letter of recommendation, no impressive references, but instead he points to the solid evidence of fruit from the ministry of the gospel. Verse 2, you yourselves are our letter, written on our hearts, known and read by everyone. He goes on in verse 3 to reference the Old Testament prophets, Ezekiel and Jeremiah, where God says he will write the law on his people's heart. As Daph said earlier this morning, before the covenant was sprinkled on the people in blood, but they couldn't keep the law that was given. But the new covenant, which we will come to, is the people being sprinkled by Jesus' blood and Jesus giving us the Holy Spirit so that the law is written on our hearts. And we want to obey God. And actually there is a direct application for this as well. Because each of us has that call to go and minister the gospel, as I said earlier. And we're also called to have the aroma of Christ in our daily lives. But if you're anything like me, you often will feel inadequate in that task. You'll often feel a failure. But what we are to cling to comes in verses 4 and 5. Such confidence we have through Christ before God. Not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. We are not to live by the law, 
Our competence is to come through the perfect lawgiver who represents us, Jesus Christ. So whether tonight you are somebody who um, is teaching the Bible in Bible studies, or whether you are somebody who's a Christian who just is at the school gates with people that aren't Christians, trying to live a faithful life as a Christian, your competence only comes through Christ. And actually, if you do feel competent to teach God's word, and you do feel competent as a Christian, it is a warning sign, a warning sign that maybe you're living by your own strength. But if you feel that you are not competent, then you are completely and totally right. You're not. I'm not competent. But we are competent through Christ. And that is why Paul can stand in front of the Corinthians. That is why he can write to them and he can say, I am competent to preach the gospel. They are not to trust his references or his competence on uh, people saying that he is competent. No, they are to look at the evidence of lives that have been changed by the gospel. So we are to recognise that competence comes from God. And finally, we are to recognise that ministry is done by those made bold in the new covenant. Ministry is done by those made bold in the new covenant. So Paul makes mention of this new covenant in verse 6 that he is a minister of. And he goes on to unpack it really um, in the following verses by comparing it to the old covenants. The ministry which brings death that we read about in verse 6, or verse 7, sorry, is the law, the old covenant. Now, this old covenant was not evil or wrong or some kind of mistake by God, but it did bring death because people couldn't keep it perfectly. They had rejected God, and the fair punishment from this was his judgment, his righteous judgment. But despite the fact the Old Covenant brought death, it still was glorious. And one of the ways that this is shown is through Moses. Verse 7 actually refers to Exodus 34. We won't flip to it now, but let me read Exodus 34, verse 29. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the covenant law in his hands, he was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. Moses didn't just put on some of that expensive moisturizer that we can buy today, but actually he'd been in the presence of the Lord. And because of that, God's glory was reflecting from his face. This was representing that this old covenant came in glory. The people needed to take this old covenant seriously. That glory was so majestic that he actually had to cover his face so the Israelites could even look at him. But Paul makes this point here that the old covenant was never meant to be permanent. What was to come was to be even more glorious. The new covenant, which brought righteousness instead of death. And actually the application of this truth is found in verse 12. Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We are to boldly reflect God's glory. The new covenant, which we see here, actually should bring boldness to the Christian. And this is boldness to proclaim the gospel because we know that God can change lives through it. The veil that covered Moses' face was because the old covenant was passing away. It was never meant to be permanent, as I said. But Paul had confidence when he proclaimed the new covenant. And his confidence was that its glory would never fade. It has the power to bring people to God. Now, the passage says, you'll notice, there are those who can't see beyond the veil. 
It says in 14 particularly that people's minds were made, made dull. And there are those people who are looking at the old covenant and who are believing that the only way they can be right with God is through their own actions. That looks today like people trying to live as if their good deeds are the thing that is going to make them right with God, the thing that will get them to heaven. And that is why the aroma of the gospel is so often offensive to people. As we looked earlier, the aroma can split humanity. It does split humanity. Because actually it tells people that you are not good enough. But Christians can boldly proclaim the new covenant because it does have the power to remove the veil. But that is a work of the Holy Spirit. And as we read in verse 16, those who turn to Christ have that veil removed. They can see that the old covenant is not the way to be saved. Instead, it points to the new covenant. And the challenge for us really comes in verse 18. Actually, that challenge is that as we contemplate God's glory... That word um, that is used in in the NIV actually isn't probably as uh, helpful as a description as it could be. Probably um, a more um, helpful translation um, would be that we reflect God's glory. Our day-to-day lives as Christians should be reflecting Christ. The Christians should be living a bold life, a life in which they are looking to live out the fact that they are saved through Christ alone. They are not living a life in which they are trying to justify themselves, but they are living a life which means that they are justified. So they can boldly proclaim that message to non-Christians, and they can boldly live knowing that they are right in God's eyes. Now, just as a point um, as before we close, verse 17 particularly mentions the fact that we have freedom in Christ. But we need to be very, very careful when we read this. Because one mistake that we could make is we can read this and think, oh, that just means the old covenant was something before. I don't need to be obedient to God. But actually, as we've already seen, the law is written on the Christian's heart. And what we see here is that actually we are reflecting Christ day to day. And what that means is that we should be living in obedient freedom. We should be those who are not defined by our, um, our way that we are obeying the law. We are those that are defined by Christ, but we are still to, live those, still to live lives as those who are obedient to God's word. We are to live lives as those who are understanding the Holy Spirit is working in us day to day. And the work of the Holy Spirit is to transform us into the likeness of Christ. So as we close, let me remind us of how Paul justifies his ministry and how that actually applies how we should view our own lives, our own Christian ministry. Ministry is done by those who have the aroma of Christ. So the challenge for us is to examine whether we are spreading the aroma of Christ. Ministry is done by those made competent by God. So we are to recognize that our competence only comes from God. And ministry is done by those made bold in the new covenant. So we are to live lives that boldly reflect God's glory. As we go into this week, we have a glorious new covenant to live by and to share with non-Christians. Maybe think about the fact that it is a bank holiday tomorrow. What does that bank holiday look like for you? Is your life going to be one that is seeking to spread the aroma of Christ? Or is it so easy for us, as we often do, to look at a bank holiday and just see to have some me time?
That's something that I so often do. I can see time off work as time to relax. Instead of looking at God's word and seeking to have the aroma of Christ. Let us remember this week that the glorious new covenant surpasses the old covenant. And that new covenant comes through Jesus Christ. Who we should be living for and praising as we live our day to day lives. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for how we see um, Paul, um, and thank you for the fact that he was one who had the aroma of Christ in all of his ministry. We pray that you would help us to live lives that have the aroma of Christ in all that we do. And Lord, we thank you that even the Apostle Paul's competence did not come from himself, but actually he was only made competent in you. We pray that you'd help us to remember that as we go out into this week. The only way that we can do your work is through you. Help us to remember that and to cling to that. And Lord, finally, help us to go out into the world and to be bold. We thank you again for how the Apostle Paul shows an example of somebody who is bold. Because we have a wonderful, wonderful message. The new covenant We have the wonderful message that Jesus Christ came to die for our sins so that we might be right with you and have um, an expectation of heaven, have an expectation that we can live a life today and be made into the likeness of Christ. Help us to remember these things as we go into the week. Help us to live a life that declares your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.